Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to Excess for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me snicking along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hi, I'm Jonah. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNate, XGray, X. I'm Tori Sheehan. You can find me on Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan and on Instagram at SMTori. That's Tori with an I. Hey, everybody. It's Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's right. Twitter at Dazzler, like in the age of apocalypse, Dazzler AOA. I never get tired of being reminded which age of <laughs> that you come from. It makes me so happy. And <laughs> speaking of things that make me so happy. So a book was brought to my attention in the last couple of weeks, and it was TK bringing me Typhoid Fever, which is sort of like this little typhoid mary gem that came out right before the, the zadarsky run i didn't you know have a chance to read it when it came out at the time what a phenomenal read it was and it led us all to taking a look at a bit more of the amazing writer clay mcleod chapman's library and it led us to having him here today so clay i want to thank you so much for coming out and hanging with us hey everybody my name is clay mcleod chapman and you can find me on twitter and instagram at uh, clay mcleod <laughs> at clay mcleod is that yes it's all Clay McCloud. I, you guys did such an amazing rollout. I wanted to piggyback. I wanted to coattail off of you guys. So I yeah. one time had a creator get like upset that I didn't let him be part of it. And so like in the middle of the introductions, Bob Quinn just goes, and I'm Bob Quinn. And you can find me at Robot JQ. And I- <laughs> So I was like, I'm so sorry. I should have given you the option. I'm so sorry, Bob. So (laughs) I want to start with what a pleasure it's been diving into sort of your very broad spectrum of Marvel books you've been on in the last couple of years, as well as books over at Boom Studios. Do you want to tell us a little bit how you came into writing comics? Oh, man. So first off, I have to say it is astounding and terrifying that your entry point was typhoid fever. I know we'll (laughs) talk about it later, but this may be the first time I think I've ever spoken publicly about that one. I always feel like that's my Achilles heel comic. So I feel very fortunate and grateful that you're still talking to me after reading that. So my story was that I lived this pretty humble existence, writing a lot of different things. And when I started like 200 years ago, I did a lot of playwriting to kind of begin off. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a playwright? Are you are you a fan of the I'm theater? a stage manager. And I'm a playwright and Daredevil comic podcast podcaster an x-men comic podcaster so this is really a good fit you belong here you're just hanging out it's a tuesday night it's all coming full circle it was meant to be guys I grew up in Virginia. We had this statewide playwriting competition for middle school and high school students. And I had gone through it when I was a student. And then I had the good fortune to come back like years later to teach as an instructor. And at that point, it was like mainly like juniors and seniors in high school. And this was probably, gosh, this is probably like 2001, 2002. I was teaching a group of these playwrights. It was like maybe like 10 students 
students from the state of Virginia. And one of them was this young woman by the name of Ellie. And Ellie, she was an amazing writer, amazing playwright. I think she came back to that program several years, just, you know, constantly writing plays. She graduated from high school. She eventually went to college, graduated from college. And then somewhere along the way, after graduating from college, got an internship at Marvel, you know, worked her way up the kind of Marvel ladder. Wait, Ellie Pyle? Ellie Pyle. Are you fucking telling me Daredevil editor Ellie Pyle, like like <laughs> queen of my heart, like one of my friends who when she worked at Marvel was like, I'm going to introduce you to Ellie for your birthday. That's your birthday gift. Like, Oh my God, happy birthday. Fuck, it's not, well, it's not today, but thank you. And fuck, I just, <laughs> I love your story. Birthday, you made Ellie Pyle. <laughs> Clay, I want your biography. Can that be your next comic? Keep going. Man. I love it. I want to say it was probably like 2002, 2003. And then... Fast forward to probably like 2009, maybe even like 2011. It was a while ago. She basically had moved to New York and, you know, started working for Steve Wacker. And she came to this reading that I was doing in the Bowery. She came up to me afterwards and she's like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I was one of your students in that statewide playwriting competition like from years ago, 10 years ago. She's like, hey, if you ever want to write for Spider-Man, maybe you should pitch me some stories. I was like, yeah. Basically, my career has basically been if anyone ever asks like, hey, have you ever wanted to do this? Or do you want to do this thing? I just say yes. And, you know, just kind of dive in head first. And when Ellie said, hey, do you want to write for Spider-Man? I just said, yeah. I found myself basically having lunch with Ellie and Steve Wacker. And they were like, so pitch us some stories. I cut my teeth learning how to write comics by writing the like non-canon B story, like back nine, you know, like Spider-Man learns to do his laundry or like, don't do drugs, kid. Kids, says Spider-Man. Like the, the, the kind of like hey, really kind of speedy, short and sweet stories. Speedy made a living on those stories over at DC <laughs> for a very, very long speed-induced time. Yeah. Yeah. People will read them and they're good stories because you don't have to worry about the tonnage of the canon is not on your shoulders. You can just kind of do whatever you want and just kind of spin a yarn. I was like telling like kind of goofy, quirky, Halloween-y kind of... At a certain point, I realized that I guess my strong suit was that I could tell the spooky stories. And I just followed Ellie wherever she went. And if she ever asked me to to write something, I would. I think honestly, like the real kind of game changer for me at Marvel was that Ellie asked me to write uh, issue for Edge of Spider-Verse. I mean, that was probably like, what, 2014? Like, they did this like five issue series called Edge of Spider-Verse. And then I think pretty much the only reason why anyone knows about Edge of Spider-Verse now is because issue two was Spider-Gwen. That's when they first introduced Spider-Gwen. I got to write issue four in the way that Ellie kind of opened it up was like, hey, let's do a spooky, scary Spider-Man. I pitched the kind of like, we have Spider-Man doing the whole, you know, gets bit by a radioactive spider with great power comes great responsibility. And I was just like, well, what if Peter Parker wasn't a good person to begin with? And then he gets bit by a spider. And like, what happens to that kind of person who gets great power? And I basically said, what if they start off as a monster? And so we got to do a kind of like alternate reality version of the Peter Parker Spider-Man origin story as if he turned into a spider.
spider monster. I think it kind of like became that like that's when I started to be able to be kind of perceived as someone who could write scary stuff for Marvel. Yeah. So then I got to ask, how did Typhoid Fever come about? Yes. <laughs> oh, man. We're going to like hold this book against you. <laughs> like, yeah. no, we love it. No, I'm kidding. Like, we actually love it. We have no, a it. podcast. Yeah, we loved it. So you're in good company here. I feel like I have a lot of feelings for Typhoid Fever. And it's interesting because, ah, I don't know. I don't know. What am I going to say about Typhoid Fever? Ellie had moved on. So I shifted to Devin Lewis. Devin became my editor at Marvel. And he was great. He is great. I've been working with him ever since. At this point, if anyone says like, hey, we have this character and we're trying to figure out what to do with them, what would be your kind of pitch for them? And Devin came to me with Typhoid Mary. And he was like, we're kind of bridging the gap. We're probably going to be needing to see Mary, you know, later down the road. So, you know, basically, how can we get her to New York? Like, what can we do to kind of bring her here? It was terrifying because Mary was one of these characters that I had a lot of sympathy for her. I felt like her pathology, like, I mean, when you think of Typhoid Mary, where do you go? I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what are the stories that you think of immediately with Typhoid so, Mary? So I grew up on Daredevil, like the man with Without Fear yeah. 1 through 5 was my first five comic books. And so, like, I go to the end of Senti Run, and then I also sometimes go to Mutant Zero and giggle a little God, bit. that's me. Shut up. I love that so much. <laughs> that's so great. And TK and I have been covering a lot of Typhoid Mary and Elektra through Devil's Reign stuff. So I also go to that amazing yeah. new end of Senti story split from Elektra Black, yeah. White, and Blood 3. I feel like her character is one of these personalities where, like, as she's kind of grown and kind of evolved throughout... Every time someone kind of works towards her character, there's a certain tragedy to her. And I wanted to focus on the kind of, I don't want to say broken, but like the kind of fractured personality and the, the kind of points of view that have split off. I wanted to write a story about her. That was kind of my focal point, I think, for getting into this. And at that point, the structure was ultimately like they knew that issue one was going to be Spider-Man. Issue two was going to be the X-Men. Issue three was going to be Iron Fist. Like that was kind of programmed before I pitched. So it was a matter of trying to kind of build build this architecture around those three issues and those three kind of specific characters, multiple characters told through these kind of three storylines, but try to give it a unifying thread, which was Mary. I mean, frankly, it was just like her, I don't know, like I just saw it as the kind of like the tragedy of Typhoid Mary. I love how you did that though. It like really made her so much more sympathetic than a lot of takes on her I've seen. The choice of the X-Men in it, like did you get to choose what characters were were going to come along or were they kind of already along for the ride? They were like, you got to use these. Kind of the latter. It was like, these are the ones you got to use. This is probably why I'm terrified. Like, I feel like, you know, diving into the pool of X-Men, there are so many characters, but there's such a lush, there's a history there. I will say critically of myself, I don't know if I threaded the needle with the X-Men in particular. Spider-Man was a character I had written for. Iron Fist was a character I had written for. The X-Men were not. And I think that issue in particular, it was, you know, there was a previous storyline and I'm blanking on who wrote it, but there was this notion of Mary being a uh, soap opera star. That's Anne Nesenti with J.R.J.R. on art. There you go. 
There you go. There you go. Nico wow. Knows it's so I, much. Nico's wow. It's all oh, queued the fuck up in here. It's just Nicopedia. <laughs> you just type in and you get the outcome. I mean, I remember reading that and being like, this is amazing. Because no one else at that point had done anything with that, right? That was, it was so, okay. So Tori and I were even talking about this tonight trying to figure out what parts of Mary were real all along and what parts are construct is one of the hardest parts of her character narrative. And that's just not to fanboy, but like that was one of the things that most made me thrilled with typhoid fever. It represented the uncertainty of the world Mary lived in and it made the reader engage with the world of sort of kind of shadows that Mary lives with. And I mean, I I could do a round table on this, but I think we can all agree. The X-Men were really good there. You don't have anything to worry about we're an X-Men podcast yeah we would let you know I gotta say especially Jean Grey like you nail Jean Jean and perfect Jean legitimately Jean is a foil to Marion as a reflection of like what happens when you have the same powers and kind of problems but better people around you to help you out it was a phenomenal yeah. way two yeah. characters to put together that I never would have thought of that I'm obsessed with now and uh, seeing the X-Men in that soap opera world of <laughs> oh yes oh my god, oh, my god. How that was with the art it was such a great job writing to an art team as well it felt yeah. right looking at it <laughs> Well, that, I mean, I guess that's the thing. I love that idea of her being an actress, that there was this kind of performative aspect to her, whether it was real or not real. If you ground yourself in Mary's point of view, what was engaging about that is that it kind of gives trauma, like, voice, I guess. It allows her past, her history. It gives it kind of room. And, like, to put her up against Jean, the soap opera stuff was a lot of fun, and it was a total lark. But it felt like it allowed me an opportunity to kind of crank up the emotional content like everything is kind of elevated in that like telenovela it's up at 11 but at the end of the day I just wanted to give Mary an opportunity to kind of yell like shout like scream into the the void who's gonna answer but gee I think she's the only one who has the kind of capacity to you know, say, I see you and I understand what you're going through. I'm here for you. Even if, you know, Mary's resistant to it or pushes back. Like, I just wanted there to be a conversation with those two. No, I love it. I love where Mary was like, ah, I just beat Eugene Gray, the Omega Mm -hmm. level mutant. Would you make the argument up until recently that Mary has been one of these characters that has been either marginalized or sidelined, but has always been there and has always kind of bubbled up to the surface. And like when she does, I feel like there's something so powerful and potent about her. But like, I mean, there hasn't been like a standalone like series for her, right? Like there, no one's ever done that before. So there was a four issue miniseries in 1995, again by Ann Nesenti called Tiger. Typhoid. It only really it was just a four issue miniseries. It didn't do quite as much as anybody had hoped. She's had co starring features in Marvel Comics Presents going back as far as 1989. Uh, they usually co starred Wolverine, but she's never had like this. Was uh, Tori was asking me, she was like, How has there never been a Mary event before this? And I was like, No, she's never had anything on this scale. This is the biggest scale they've ever given Mary. I just feel like she deserves an ongoing like she just strikes me as a really rich character and i wish someone would go for it you're being very kind to me i wish i could have done more for her because i don't know i think she deserves it i think i have to agree with you at least with typhoid mary it's odd that she's not more in the cultural vernacular in terms of comic because you know the 
the name Typhoid Mary. Everybody knows about where that comes from. She kind of has like all of the keys, like all, all of the good qualities that would make for a character that you would think would have notoriety and popularity between an easy and like recognizable name that you can search up. Her design is pretty well thought out and it's pretty unique in terms of characters that you will see within Marvel Comics. She's got a boatload of cool powers. She's part of the Weapon X program. Like there's like a whole laundry list of things that you would expect to find that Typhoid Mary would be more popular. You talked about, you know, the playwright competition. I would love to know the similarities and differences of writing plays versus writing comics. Are there any like weird coincidences that you, from your experience as being a playwright that you're like, oh, I, you could apply this to comics and it's, it's weirdly similar in these ways. As someone who's kind of transitioned away from playwriting and phased more into, you know, film and TV work, screenwriting, I think that the way that I try to articulate the, the kind of similarities between screenwriting and comic book writing is that you're always trying to distill the action or the image down to its most kind of sharp, succinct haiku-like gesture. With writing for film, there's this notion of like, how do you write with economy? Like, how do you maximize the page by pulling back or kind of showing restraint? Given the fact that both filmmaking, like screenwriting and the comic books are, they're both visual mediums. I always think of myself as someone who is creating the schematic for the either the filmmaker, the director, or the illustrator artist to bring to life. You know, I don't want to suggest that screenwriting or comic book writing is secondary, but nobody comes to the comic, read the script. They like they come for the comic and it's that kind of marriage of the two. I don't know. Like, I just feel like I'm doing a blueprint both for screenwriting and for comic book writing. Like, I think, what is the image going to be? What is the interpretation of these words? I almost frankly think of myself more as an architect than as a writer, focusing on the image, like, what is that one movement, that one verb, that one gesture that can kind of like inhabit that panel? That's my rambly version that got from playwriting to movies. I love that so much because I know that when Nico and I started making comics, we had a lot of conversations, um, particularly when I was doing some more of the artwork about what I was bringing from the world of theater into the panel. And to know that there's just so much that can translate over from script writing or from screenwriting that can come into comics, I think is a is a great way to, to say to people like there's more than just one way to become a media writer in yeah. this world. The worst comics I've written are the ones that are like when I'm trying to like cop to Alan Moore or something where it's like lush prose and like you know just like reams of like description and when I'm doing my Marvel work definitely look at this it'll be like there's like three things happening in this one panel and it makes no sense so I think the thing I've learned is like what is the gesture like what is the action that that can inhabit that panel and how do you distill it like refine it reduce it to to the kind of starkest image and you know screenwriting kind of teaches you the same thing there are going to be a lot of comic writers and screenwriters who would disagree but i feel like it's more about economy than it is about creating a density of text for me like the comics that i'm most excited about are when i step out of the illustrator's way and kind of create the foundation or create the scaffolding or create the schematic skeletal framework 
that will be there for the illustrator or the penciler to fill that in and, and make it something even better. Yes, we've had this conversation before about the difference between like the original Marvel comics from the 60s and the 70s that are just so many words. It's just, it's so much lettering versus how economic things are now. It's really interesting because actually when I was reading a lot of Typhoid Fever, there's so much going on with Mary and so many different bubbles and, and thoughts yeah. and different things. Um, can you talk a little bit about the kind of research that you went into for making sure that each of her voices was particularly in sync for what we know of her? I imbibed what came before. I've already kind of exposed myself for not remembering names and titles and, and writers, but I mean, this is going back. I have it right here in front of me. I'm trying to find the date. This was, the trade paperback came out in 2019, which doesn't feel like that long ago. Good Lord. But, Pre- um, pre-pandemic is always a million <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I was going to easily say 2015, 2016, but no, 2019. That's wild. It's interesting because I think of the comics that came before, like there was a foundation for her, but she's always pitted against somebody. She's always with Daredevil or, you know, Elektra or Wolverine. Like, and even in Typhoid Fever, like, of course, like there's all these other characters that, that she's pitted against. But like the thing that I wanted most was I think of like her voice and the kind of emotional honesty that came out in her character in a lot of the original stuff. Digging into that as much as possible, like trying to think of like, you know, multiple personality disorder or specifically how someone who has a fractured personality is either given the kind of support or healing process or not. And how a character like that can kind of go down all these various paths and and threads and still need to feel like a cohesive unit, a cohesive person, a real character. Whether I succeeded or not, I leave that up to you, but that was the kind of hope or intent going into it. And there's something like, I've been dying to say this thing too, because I, speaking of Alan Moore, right, I love when things are just needlessly, concentrically magical. And so I think there's something so fucking incredible to the fact that the Zdarsky Daredevil picks up the threads of where you leave Mary, and then you got to come in and write villains for hire as part of devil's reign and it just it feels like such a cool bow it feels like you know this thread element that you began weaving into this tapestry that pulled together so many facets of the marvel universe i mean i don't think that there's any part of devil's reign that felt particularly unnecessary and i am a huge classic thunderbolts fan so you know, showing my showing my slight age, like I was very coming of age as Baron Zemo first introduced me to Citizen V and I fell in love with Citizen V and then found out he was, you know, kind of like a fucking Nazi and I wasn't so crazy about him. <laughs> I genuinely love versions of Rhino where he has this commitment of self. There's something really endearing about that. Like yeah. he so begrudgingly does not want to be here and he's kind of fucking stuck and i wanted to ask you about your thunderbolts number one it's so terrific to see a male writer work so clearly with multiple female voices who feel distinct 
And it wasn't about a testosterone fit. This wasn't showing power, you know, by all the dicks. This was <laughs> showing power through forceful, powerful characters who some of them just happened to be female. And what it was like taking on this iteration of the Thunderbolts for villains for hire. You just rolled out the red carpet there, man. I don't I'm know in. what to say. So Thank in. you. <laughs> Speaking specifically to the kind of dovetailing of, you know, typhoid fever into Devil's Reign, one of the more exciting aspects of working for Marvel is that you have all of these artists and writers essentially kind of like doing a relay race. And it's always amazing when the baton gets passed from one artist or writer to the next. It's not like we're all talking about this. Like I, you know, it's not like this is like a, a communicated thing. It's beautiful when like you see one storyline close and it kind of reopens or gets picked up and kind of furthered by another writer or another storyline. It doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, like you just see kind of elements or callbacks to previous issues. And I think Marvel, I mean, Marvel is just very cognizant of its legacy and its history. And, um, you know, both the readers, the fans, and the people writing and working on it. So I don't know, like it's it's nice when that symmetry is there. So I really appreciate you saying that. Writing for Thunderbolts, you know, it's so funny. Like if I had to pick what were what would be what would be the the, the kind of storylines that I would be the most sheepish to talk about, it would probably be Typhoid Fever and then the villains for hire. <laughs> I'm glad I could expose all of your insecurities oh, for oh, permanent yeah. audio yes. recording. Oh man. Oh man. The challenge for villains for hire was, you know, I had three issues. There was a kind of entry point and an exit point, And those were, were relatively clear going in like where I had to begin and where I had to end. The end kind of changed a bit as the series continued to be developed. So, you know, I came to the table basically being asked like, what is the story that you would want to tell within this kind of larger framework? What is the story that you can kind of squeeze into these three issues that also kind of interlocks and then interplays with the larger story? I mean, it's tough. You know, we were talking about Alyssa before we pressed record, but like her agony run for Extreme Carnage was so inspiring that when they said, hey, we're thinking of, you know, putting together these Thunderbolts and we think agony is going to be a part of it. I was like, oh my God, how the hell can you do this without Alyssa being here? She put like such a stamp on on Agony with uh, her new, her most recent host. I reached out to her. I emailed her and I was like, Alyssa, I've been asked to do this thing and they're going to bring Agony and Gemma and are you okay with that? Like, what do I do? And she was like, oh, just go for it. Just have fun. And if I'm being totally, totally honest, the brightest facet aspect of the Villains for Hire piece in my mind, for me personally, was working on the agony character i just wanted to write agony (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i I was gonna say looking at a a lot of uh your output before you've done a lot with symbiotes so like was agony somebody like who you just never got a chance to write and you always wanted to and do you have a favorite symbiote my first kind of opportunity to write an ongoing was for scream my default you know my heart 
heart is always going to be with them. Like Scream is hands down like my favorite. For I guess like two years almost. I was very fortunate to write for Scream. And even when the ongoing series got canceled because of coronavirus and the whole distribution thing, the readers, the fans were so, I, I mean, their voice was so kind of powerful but that like Marvel paid attention and listened. And like any chance that they got to bring Scream back for anything, they would. So it wasn't necessarily bringing back the ongoing, but it was it was them basically being like, wow, there are a lot of Scream fans out there. So let's let's put Scream in this. Let's put Scream in this. And for a while, at least I was lucky enough to be the person to, to write those. So, yeah, I would say Scream for sure. I did have a chance to write for Agony. For the most part, there's always the Life Foundation symbiote. So it's Riot, Phage, Lasher, Agony, and then Scream. You know, you have the four of them and they're always kind of partnered up as this unit. And one of the, my favorite, like hands down top three comics that I've ever written was this one called Absolute Carnage Separation Anxiety. And it was with artist Brian Level. And we got to do all of the symbiotes there except for Scream. So it was Riot, Phage, Agony, and Lasher. And that was my first chance to write for Agony. But that all said, it wasn't until Alyssa took over and did her version of Agony for Extreme Carnage that like, I think that character really came to life because they're the symbiotes. Yes, they're the, the kind of parasites, but it's always the host that matters. You know, who's contrasting the kind of extraterrestrial symbiote. You're never writing for just one character. You're writing for two. And it's the dialogue. It's the communication between host and symbiote that really, really matters. And Alyssa understood that and really kind of went to town with that. I could be wrong. I do think that like her take on agony was probably one of the first, if not the first chances to really see that that symbiote be paired with a character that felt like now they are a standalone. I'm just checking. Everybody just keeps going agony like in yep. their head over yep. and over <laughs> again. Just yep. Thousand yep. fucking percent Santa. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, one of the things that I was so enamored of when I was reading Scream Curse of Carnage was it's something that is reflected in something like the relationship between Gemma and Agony. Gemma and Agony are like besties that just like to do murder and cannibalism together. <laughs> and you've got yeah. like Eddie and Venom are in love with each other. I mean, I think they're in a relationship. The relationship that developed between Scream and Andy, where towards the end, they're just constantly saying, we're family. We're all we have. We're here. We're together. We are one. We're, we're family. It was such a beautiful, strong relationship to see develop. And it was so rewarding to continue to read the book and see them have a very unique love for each other. I just kind of wanted to hear about how you came to that idea for the relationship. One of the entry points for the first arc for Scream Curse of Carnage was to think of like who the, the big bad would be, like who would the villain be? And I, I did that kind of deep dive into kind of esoteric, kind of like off the beaten path villains. And I found Big Mother. And, you know, Big Mother was one of these characters that had popped up occasionally, but not a lot. And frankly, like it started with the name, like just to be completely honest, like it was like Big Mother, like who's Big, who's Big Mama? This is insane. Talking about that character and like talking 
talking to Devin about that character, family became a kind of a real kind of valuable thing. Unbeknownst to me, but totally to Devin's kind of glee, there was this whole notion of like the Grendel myth, like playing into the symbiotes with the dragons and everything else. He was like, oh my God, you could use Big Mother and it would like dovetail into like Grendel and all of that. And like, we'll just say that Big Mother is like Grendel's mother. And I was like, okay, sure. You know, speaking specifically to Andy and Scream's relationship, I wanted to think of it as a family drama, like a family saga where the two of them have to become each other's family because of the previous hosts for Scream, like Donna, and then thinking specifically of Andy. She sees her father murdered before her, if I'm remembering correctly. She, like, maybe lived with her uncle or something. Like, her mother did not exist in any previous comic. So it was kind of like, why has Andy never, like, had a mom? Like, And so, like, all of these kind of loose elements of, like, big mother, no mother, scream, the ripping asunder of every host that, that Scream's ever had. It all just kind of melded into this idea of, like, who is your family? How do you choose your family when your family is no longer here? And, like, I needed them to find one another. I needed Scream and Andy to find that relationship. And that was, in essence, the the architecture, the arc of that first, that first arc. Like, I, I wanted them to lean into one another in a way where, like, at the beginning, you see Andy basically just being like, I don't want you here. I don't need this. I can't do this and then by the end them kind of embracing one as family i mean in all this time i have never cared about a symbiote character and now i am a huge andy stan i'm absolutely obsessed with her all i think about is all the places i would love to see her used she's such a great well-developed character and this has been such an amazing run to see her go from scream to silence and yeah she's just a phenomenal character well, Cullen Bunn, I mean, I really feel like Cullen laid down the... I'm basically just building, like, riffing off of what Cullen had done previously. So I feel very fortunate to, like, walk in the footsteps of greater writers. And he's amazing. And, like, the same thing with Typhoon Mary. Like, so many of these female characters that you find in the Marvel stable are... They're dealing with trauma. <laughs> or there have been traumatic aspects to their life. They're, they're, you know, who they are. At least the characters they allow me to write for so i just wanted to kind of focus on that and explore that to whatever extent i could speaking of characters who i hadn't cared about in a while like you were able to make john walker u.s agent like a (laughs) a character who i like actually didn't hate for the first time since west coast avengers like like what was your approach with him that like because your take's amazing here's the thing i think for better or for worse i try to approach these characters from a place where like i find one specific aspect aspect of their character, their personality that I think is either really, really interesting and unexplored or is almost antithetical to what has come before. And U.S. Agent, I mean, Walker to me has been this character that has, you know, he seems like a figurehead. He's a fraught character in my mind. I will admit, when I started reading U.S. Agent, I was like, like, this is like, whoa, (laughs) like, I don't know. Like, I felt really, like, conflicted. He is Walker, U.S. agent. You're not, you're not wrong. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think, I think that's supposed to be your response. He to sucks. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it's like a hard is, sucks and it's a sucks you can lean into, but it's a sucks. Yeah, he is who he is, you know? And what I found really in like the facet of him that I found interesting was that we're living in a time where <laughs> you can believe in something and the belief eclipses everything else. Like belief is a very powerful, it is a motivating force. And I wondered what would Walker feel like if the thing that he stood for, what he was emblematic of, started to get away from him. Like if he kind of lost maybe a little bit of control over his image. You know, when I first started talking about doing this Villains for Hire thing, there was the Thunderbolts team. And then they were like, we, we're thinking we want Walker to be in charge of them. And, you know, Fisk will has to do this pitch for him and like at that point it was basically like Fisk approaching Walker to lead the team and we talked a lot about like image rehabilitation or like making Walker the kind of emblem of what the the Thunderbolts would be in a Fisk regime all of this talk and I was the one kind of having this talk I would you know even if I was if it was me having the conversation with Devin or having the conversation with myself it would basically be like this is encroaching upon fascism this is encroaching upon we're like one or two steps or notches away from like something feeling charged maybe a little fraught i liked that and i wanted to play with that and i thought that like wouldn't it be cool if there was a certain discourse that was happening within walker where like when it finally got to script and it finally got to like the comic a lot of that kind of refined itself to what it, it ended up being but like you know i don't know i just wanted him to have a crisis an identity crisis like he's a puppet he's stands for something and he believes in something but like that belief is getting away from him the kind of value system that that walker has is being implemented by fisk to be something else that maybe walker himself wouldn't feel comfortable with all those interior monologues of like him like talking about being a puppet for the system it was just all the stuff that was going on in my head when i was like combating against this character and how to write him I think it's so great that Marvel even wanted to go in that direction, especially knowing that John Walker was just seen in Falcon, Winter, Captain Man, whichever <laughs> the D-plus Captain America show was that I liked so much with my husband. In seeing him there, we saw a probably less conflicted, a little bit more, hey, what's up, Roydzy kind of guy. And I like knowing that Marvel as an editorial group, which clearly has nothing to do with the TV show, but the editorial group frequently does lean in the direction of what's popular. So knowing that they are willing to allow John to be that level of conflicted on page definitely does fill me with hope because yeah, John kind of sucks and it's <laughs> really difficult to not notice how much Marvel is actively working to get away from flags mean punch things, especially yeah. with like, you know, Punisher now being like, yeah, I work with the death cult. What's the big problem? And everybody being like, well, the death cult for one and you know, <laughs> Punisher for two. Yeah. So it's very exciting. I do feel like I need to pay lip service to Devin. There's a lot of conversations that are happening about like how to navigate these characters and how best to express them in, you know, these kind of changing times. And like, I don't know, writing this now after having last summer with all of the protests 
And where we were last year to where we are now, I feel like the conversation has not stopped. So like to think of like a character that is basically put in charge of a new police force that is ultimately responsible for protecting the police. Like it was like all of that stuff is like, how do you tell that story in a comic and not talk about what's going on in the real world? And like, you know, it sometimes it boils down to like one line, maybe it's one panel, one visual image that you get, but like, you know, it's thinking in terms of like how to either contribute to the discourse or partake in the discourse and still feel like it's uh, an adventure, I guess. And I think that it's really, I'm trying to think about the right way, like to not sound too fan servicey because like I hate being like I'm so excited you're on my show let me do nothing but compliment you because that I'm sure you everybody picked, gets tired you picked the two worst comics I've ever written and I feel like you're still like being nice to me so like you <laughs> like please say you can say whatever you want I'm happy thank you <laughs> And there's something you said that I hadn't really connected with some of your work before, but it's a really interesting perspective. You got to create an all-new Spider-Man with one of your first entry points, and that is emblemic in so many ways of you know the Marvel brand. When Marvel was trying to foray into other things, they had a Spider-Man set on top of the M. And when they <laughs> launch a new universe, it's always around a spider figure. Yep. So it's really interesting that your first foray in into like what you considered, you know, your your big step was with Spider-Man. And then you found a home in the sort of creepier side of Spider-Man. And were you like always a spider guy? Was it you just like had that spider story inside your spider soul and just couldn't <laughs> wait to spill that spider seed? Or was it more like, oh, come up with a Spider-Man? Give me a minute with some nightmares. <laughs> I, I just want to point out you said spill my spider seed. That is, uh, <laughs> that's my night. That's, that's, uh, that's, I'm yeah. I, I wasn't thinking. I, <laughs> I was so excited about the alliteration. I was just like, <laughs> very classic Nico moment. You got to roll with it. Roll with it. The spider seed. I, I mean, thwip. my spider seed. Yeah. You're going to say something. No, no. I just said thwip, no. thwip. I'm so sorry. I have to go hide in the corner <laughs> now. Thwip, thwip, oh Nico. Gosh. Oh, wow. We've gone to see this. Yes. Definitely, like, come on. It's so cool to be able to, like, write new characters. Like, I think that's the dream, right? That, like, you can say, like, oh, my God. Like, this is a character that exists within the Marvel universe. And maybe no one will ever return to those characters. Maybe they will. My Peter Parker was named Patton Parnell and there was no Spider-Man name. Like it was just Patton. He turns into like this mutant monster, spider monster. It was amazing how like um, in a in a few issues, like years later, somebody like picked it up again. Like there was like, he had like a cameo appearance. And, like that's just, I don't know. That was just so cool. I'm losing my thread. I'm, I'm spilling spider seeds all over the I, I um, when I pitched the story for that issue, it was it was kind of the what if of it all. Not literally the what if series, but like the you know what if Spider Man was a monster. Honestly, like I this is going to sound crass, but like at least initially, I kind of prided myself on not being as well versed in the the kind of larger canon vocabulary because it permitted me an opportunity to kind of break away 
and try to tell a story that maybe wasn't necessarily in toto in kind of like simpatico with the rest. And, and, you know, sometimes that kind of led to maybe less substantial comics. I don't know, but like, I feel like there's always this chance of like, well, what if we push this character in a different direction? Or what if we did something new? Like I, I got an offer to write for Iron Fist for six issues. Oh, um, uh, 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 Phantom Limbs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, I had no desire to write Iron Fist. Forgive me, but like, I was not excited about Iron Fist because I felt like that was like another flawed character that felt dated and came from like, here's a man of privilege who is embracing another culture's, I don't know, powers or, you know, like, it, like it, it felt like appropriation to me. So I was basically like, if you want me to write for Iron Fist, let me do something with him that hasn't been done before. And they're like, well, what do you want to do with him? And I was like, I, I don't know. Let me cut off his fist. Like, let me, like, let's just start there. Let's like take what makes Iron Fist Iron Fist and completely negate that. Like, let's castrate him essentially. And they were like, yeah, okay, sure. You know, tomorrow's credit. They let me do it. That is one, if not the entry point for a lot of these characters for me, where it's like, what is the thing that has never been done with Typhoid Mary or Iron Fist or Peter Parker or Scream or John Walker? Like, what is the thing that you can say is kind of pushing the character? Not 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 storyline, not like you know, not larger cannon fodder, but just like what is the thing that this character has never been faced with before? I try to do that. Like, what if Scream becomes silence? What is the negation of Scream? And like you know, just like always thinking in terms of contrast or negation, or you know, basically just kind of throwing a grenade and seeing what what happens when everything explodes. That's wonderful. We love when characters are faced with grenades and are exploded upon. You've written a whole a bevy of characters. And something I would love to know is, is there a character that you haven't written before that you think you can really give an amazing spooky story to? Not that it has to be spooky, but like, is there a character that you're like, I want to write them for something? Yeah. You know, it's not often, but every time I get asked this question, the default, the, like my heart, like I close my eyes and all I see is man thing like i just see man thing like i want man thing man thing i feel so much better about the spider seed joke now (laughs) (laughs) it's like there's man thing there's spider seed this episode has it all giant size man thing number one had to be the most intentional title ever morbius would be another it's so funny like i've pitched probably more morbius and man thing storylines maybe only second to scream where you know like poor devon you know he's not returning my calls at this point because i'll be like hey what about a man thing comic i think it's time for a man thing comic. you were talking about it earlier about big mama my favorite thing i have learned is from everybody who's written for marvel and i assume this goes for any major publishing of any kind is when they're like i need this kind of character like this archetype whether it's like a sorcerer or a reporter and people like just scroll through like the wiki yeah. and like try to find someone to use or like oh we haven't used them in a while can i use this character and marvel's <laughs> usually like sure who yeah yeah i mean they're there they're there for the picket this is a step above like close your eyes flip through the phone book point at a name that's the character maybe there was like a night where like i basically just like w- scrolled through the wiki alphabetically oh that's an interesting character reading up of that character huh like basically like making a list and thinking of like maybe one day these will be characters that I will be able to pitch or encounter because a lot of the times it's someone at Marvel saying hey we need this character to go into this story arc who would you pit that character again and uh, that's when it's always you know 
most of the time you always have to pick from pre-existing characters, but you know, sometimes you get to write a new character, but I, I find it kind of fun. Again, it's the whole, but you know, passing the baton, like when somebody creates a character and they have a moment for like a brief stint and then they just kind of disappear, they fade off into the ether. I find that kind of sad. So I always want to bring old characters back that like are really exciting. My one kind of claim that I really want to like hold dear is right before Scream Curse of Carnage got cancelled. The last issue to see its way to print had these bad guys that I was so happy to bring back. And they were called the Creeps. Like the Creeps only showed up in one issue of X-Men and it was one of these bizarre, it wasn't even like canon X-Men, it was like a blockbuster video tie-in promo issue. where Be extra safe with the X-Men. Yes! Yes! (laughs) Yes! Yes! Here we go. Yes! Uh, I can do it. Oh my god, you're amazing. That's insane. The creeps were basically a sweet old couple that were basically like, I mean, they were pedophiles. They were child abductors. And they would like drive around in their car. Like it was like a grandma and a grandpa. And they would just be like driving around in their station wagon to playgrounds, luring kids into their car until finally like, you know, (laughs) what was it? Beast shows up and is like, hey, kids, don't get in that car with those creeps. It was a very bright and sunny comic. But yet like the inherent notion of who these these characters were was just so uh, disarmingly like unnerving and disgusting like they were like pedophiles in a station wagon and I was like those characters have to come back when we started working on the second arc for Curse of Carnage I was like, please let me write about the creeps. Please let me bring back the creeps. And they were like, okay. Like, nobody else has used them. And I was like, I want whoever created the creeps. Like, I just want you to know if you're out there listening to this, you created the scariest characters, scariest villains Marvel has ever created. And I wanted to pay homage to you, dear ma'am, dear sir, whoever you may be. Thank you for the creeps. I can't believe we started this conversation with me being like, hey, I'm here to defend special issues about special. (laughs) topics and it actually swung the fuck back around (laughs) to a special issue that is and you know I I think it's so special that like you managed to make cool lasting impressions so many stories don't do things like that but if you're going to be doing if you're going to be doing something fun you know I also think this is the first time I've realized you've worked on so many characters at some point in a way that Alyssa has worked on you've shared (laughs) parallel symbiotes You've now had parallel iron fists. Oh uh, she's currently working on Alligator Loki. So I guess get ready for Throg. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. I will happily follow in Alyssa's footsteps wherever she goes. If she ever needs a wingman, I will I will be there. She's amazing. When she described her favorite thing about writing the symbiote as just a girl and her best friend that want to eat everyone. <laughs> I was like, yes, yes. If somebody is a fan of the comics you've put out, you know, especially maybe your spookier stuff, you know, like I'm asking for me and for everybody else what other works of yours would you suggest they go and look at? In the world of comics someone mentioned up front Boom Studios which I've done some work with. Back in pre-pandemic if you can believe this I wrote a horror series called Lazaretto I have a real soft spot for. Believe it or not it's a story about (laughs) what if a global pandemic 
that has a high virility mortality rate is sweeping through the globe. And it just so happens to be your first day of freshman year at college. And you're now quarantined in your dorm room with other people who are either sick or not sick. How does that, you know, disrupt your day? Um, now you stop that. Edge of Spider-Verse 4. Like that was a fun one. Absolute <laughs> carnage separation anxiety with, with Brian Level was great. You know, of course, like the Scream series, like that was fun. It's a little off topic. I actually get to write novels too. And um, mm-hmm. I wrote a novel that just came out. The paperback just came out last week called Whisper Down the Lane. And that is a, it's all about the satanic panic period in the 80s. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's like a yeah. psychological horror novel about belief, things that get spooky. That's just now out in paperback. And it's a little bit down the road, but in September, my next novel comes out and it's called Ghost Eaters. And Ghost Eaters is about a haunted drug. Pop a pill, see the dead, and things get spooky. Well, I love that. And, you know, anytime you have something new you want to come on and talk about, please come on back. We have had a number of people who are crazy enough to return multiple times. And I want to thank you because one of the big themes that's run through your work has been championing the voice of women. And it's so rare to find a writer where we're like, they wrote a lot of women. Let's have him on. We're usually a little bit more like they, that man wrote women often. Let's get them on a list. <laughs> and so uh, I'm just, you know, I'm shiggled to timbers to have the opportunity to thank someone who, you know, Typhoid Mary has long been a character that is a huge part of my life. And Jean Grey is like literally my favorite fictional character of all time. So it's that's why there's X's for podcast. So, uh, you know, it's just a pleasure. And as somebody who's also a writer, it actually plays and comics, it's, you know, just really great to hear somebody not just doing the thing but doing it with joy and that makes a huge difference in keeping on doing the thing oh well you guys are you know you're making me blush i you know thank you for the kind words i feel like it's it's really it's just really generous for you to like you know remember these comics after they come out (laughs) so you know thank you for talking to me i i really appreciate it it's not to like sound weird, but like this is what we do. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. This is this is our joy. So that you've contributed to our joy is yes. uh, just something that's really amazing. Hey everybody, Nico here again. And I'm TK. And we are here to talk about the book that kind of got this whole episode rolling. Now, I think one of the things that's so crazy is how many people had vaguely reconnected with the X-Men just before House and Powers. I feel like the cover and pitch for X-Men Disassembled, the uncanny run that came right before House and Powers kind of got me in and it got everything back on my radar. I'd only been covering old stuff at that point. So, you know, it eventually drew me back in to grab things like red and blue and gold, but I missed so much that was coming out around now. What was your relationship, TK, with the X-Men right before House and Powers? So I I think it's a recognizable one. I was growing a little heartbroken. I wasn't sure where the franchise was going. I wasn't sure that mutants were ever going to be treated as the excellent, multi-faceted minority metaphor that they could be, and I 
was starting to think maybe I should pull away. But the one thing that was getting me really excited was the return of the love of my life, my second mother, Jean Grey. Phoenix Resurrection, maybe not my favorite story in the world, but like we got the ball rolling and there's some interesting parts to that story and some gorgeous art. And then seeing her in the red and blue battle armor, semi-reminiscent of her 90s costume, something totally new, not attached to the Phoenix with Cassandra Nova as sort of an arch referencing back to Morrison, that was all really working for me. I can't say so much that Disassembled did in the same way that the Rosenberg Uncanny run I had trouble connecting with. In retrospect, I think um, Age of X-Men is really, really cool to look at now, but I was having trouble with it at the time. The thing that was really just singing to me was Jean Grey in the red and blue battle armor, which is part of the reason that my eye was so drawn to what we're talking about today. Yeah, I mean, for me, it had just been a matter of, I maybe didn't recognize the X-Men, and I have no problem with reinterpretations and legacy heroes. That's like a thing I particularly love, but I just took like one look at Extraordinary X-Men, and I was like, it's young Gene, and it's old man Logan, and I just don't know what I'm looking at anymore. And I took a step away from the X-Books, and when I came back for House and Powers and got to enjoy this incredible wealth of material that I just wasn't aware of, One of the things that I discovered was there are a lot of like hidden gems lying among not exactly X books that are kind of X books in ways you wouldn't think. For instance, I love that Journey into Mystery, the Birth of Krakoa one shot. We've talked extensively about the Weapon Plus stories. And yeah, now we have this amazing typhoid fever. Yeah, it's something I really at the time have no idea how I missed or didn't see because I was still paying attention to everything. I was really hoping that some comic would really draw me in and keep me because up until I started doing this podcast I was a very X-Men focused person and so if I lost focus or interest on the X-Men I really not reading a lot of Marvel so I was kind of digging around trying to find something that would keep me interested until maybe there was a new status quo change which obviously we got with Hoxpox but time had no idea that that was coming so it surprised me in retrospect to realize that I missed this, but it's a very interesting time. It's something that I think we'll reflect on, we'll continue to reflect on for years as we look back. Just the little ways in which the X-Men were, I think, I think writers and editors knew what was coming with Hawksbox and were just trying to find little ways to keep the X-Men relevant and situated in stories. And I've made a lot of comments about how this episode is all X-Men focused. This whole week is all X-Men focused. And I think there is something really important to discussing how people are kept relevant in terms of the greater picture of the Marvel Universe. Like, there's a sort of rotating natural order to things where perhaps it can't be a great time for the Avengers and the X-Men and Spider-Man and all the Avengers solo books and the street-level heroes and Marvel Mystic and Cosmic. Like, there's just too many fucking things. Not to say that there's like an inverse proportion law that is maintaining that for one editorial office to thrive, another editorial office has to seem like, you know, Dottie. But I think it is so unique that you're talking about how they were trying to keep the X-Men vital by keeping them appearing in things throughout the Marvel Universe. I saw this as they were desperate to find something that would make Typhoid Mary work. And I think we're both right. A thousand percent, you know, for every small star, there is an even smaller star ready to hitch their wagon. You know what I mean? And 
I kind of feel like the X-Men were not having the best time of it in 2018, but what the fuck was Typhoid Mary doing that was so great in 2017 that the X-Men were like, oh, yes, Mary's coming. We're going to, oh, we're saved. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, there's a, a real ebb and flow. And so this is coming on the heels of our incredible interview with the writer of Typhoid Fever, Clay McLeod Chapman, which Typhoid Fever covers Spider-Man, X-Men, and Iron Fist, three one-shot issues tying into Typhoid's Grand Delusion. Now, as I mentioned, this was brought to us by Clay McLeod Chapman. On writing duties, Stefano Landini on art, Rochelle Rosenberg on colors, VCs, Travis Lanham lettering it, and very recognizable covers in a beautiful triptych by R.B. Silva and Chris Sotomayor. And you know what? Just because he was such an amazing writer to mention his editor so many times, I just want to give it up to Devin Lewis, the editor on this project. And what a feat to bring these three different corners of the Marvel Truly. Universe, Spider-Man, X-Men, and Iron Fist together in a way that is, it makes total sense in story. It's perfect. It's synergistic. It's fun. There are three different sort of genres playing out throughout these titles that are all very closely related and that are related to the characters that they're focusing on. It's an impressive editorial feat, this story. And I want to talk for a minute about the sort of magic of maybe not realizing the legacy that was inherited by taking on Mary. It's important to note that when Anne Nascenti became the writer of Daredevil, she was one of so few women to be taken seriously in comics. Like, it just is unreal that we have still such a dearth of women working in comics, especially in those top three bylines. And Anne Nascenti was trailblazing 40 years ago, and she's still working in comics. She's still fucking destroying it every goddamn month. We have so much Andesenti coverage coming your way in the next couple of weeks. We're so excited. And for her to create Typhoid Mary way back in the pages of Daredevil 254 in May of 1988, a woman creating a woman, that was revolutionary. And Mary has had a really tumultuous ride. You know, we've talked a lot about how she was always attached to other characters. And for the most part, she does frequently play a sort of female side character, whether it's to Daredevil, Wolverine, or Deadpool. Now that's kind of a thing I can't get over. She actually really is kind of tied to the X-Men more often than not, including that X-Men run from 2013, where she appeared in issues 7 through 12. Which is something that I'm going to need to go back and spend some time with after all of this. And she also appeared in the pages of Generation X number 6 and 7 from 2017. She has been in dozens of Deadpool titles, not to mention all of her co-starring features with Wolverine back in the pages of Marvel Comics Presents. She appeared in two issues of Weapon X back in 2004, issues 26 and 28 of the 2008 series. And yet all of this, she's ever had seven issues uniquely to her name. Typhoid 1 through 4 by Anne Nascenti from November 95 to February 96 and Clay McLeod Chapman's Typhoid Fever, which I, so I've always loved Typhoid Mary, but seeing you kind of have this draw to her like I'm fascinated as my super electrostan self watching the way you're like absorbing Mary it's really amazing to watch because I grew up with her in a very personal way her stories were always a huge part of me so seeing someone take on Mary knowing who she's going to be is really tremendous well it's so funny because she has religious iconography in my head as a kid that was in comic book shops in the early 90s her image is so recognizable to me she is a 
mutant. There's stuff that I know about her that makes her an important character to my awareness, but not one that I personally followed very often. I didn't read a lot of the stories that she was in. She's just so recognizable visually and in terms of what her situation is that it was sort of inevitable at some point if I kept going on with Marvel Comics or I think even if I just still focused on X-Men, eventually Mary and I would connect at a certain level. And it just so happened that I started reading Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil run and grew so enamored with the reveal of Mary in that book and then the character that she went on to play, the role that she played in the Zdarsky run and Devil's Reign, such that she now is becoming an increasingly important character to my understanding of the Hell's Kitchen sort of corner of the Marvel Universe, the Marvel Universe as a whole, and the role of women in the Marvel Universe. Man, touching on that, the role of women in the Marvel Universe, she really is an example of how women were treated as though they were unreasonable and crazy and she can't, you know, it's not that I think Enda Senti treated her that way. It's that I feel that is such a response to a woman in crisis. You know, when you go back and you read the Enda Senti run, and I've had so many wonderful conversations talking about Daredevil with your partner, Jake TK, where, you know, we've talked about the Enda Senti run and the power of that run and the emotional resonance that those characters have. And one of the things that makes Mary such a powerful character is that she's playing this out in sort of this grand soap opera. It's a bigger picture that perhaps I felt the Iron Fist TV show did not capture so well in its second season with its perhaps unkind interpretation of Mary. And, you know, I I don't think the Elektra movie did it better. But, you know, it's one of those things where I think Iron Fist is in this three-parter because she appeared in his show. And I couldn't figure out why in Gracious the X-Men appeared in this three-parter until I did the research. And I'm like, oh, shit there's a history and then i'm like but why spider-man and now i'm like oh because clay mcleod chapman has a history with spider-man and like i don't know of all of the things you've brought to the show this is maybe like the shiningest gem because i never expected to fall in love with what really is like a fever dream of mary kind of tearing through the marvel universe because she had been in such a sense of misused obscurity before this it's almost like she burned a path to Devil's Reign and the and the Zdarsky run. And it, I don't know, I am just so enamored of this work. And it really is an important thesis statement about Mary because Mary does have these issues. Mary is has dissociative identity disorder. She is struggling. She has gone through abuse. There's something going on with Mary that is a part of her character that's real. Wait, when it's saying there's something about Mary? There's something about Mary. I'm not going to continue that joke because it'll get really inappropriate. But <laughs> it is okay to say that there is a character that has mental health issues. It is okay to explore those. It is okay to put them in stories. It's not okay to say, this woman's crazy. Ignore her or she's a villain because she's crazy. It requires a deft hand. It requires an acknowledgement of a society and a world and other particular characters or other situations that affect a person's health and well-being. And I think that is the intention behind Mary as written by Anne Nesenti. And I think reflect in stories like this, we see that presentation of, you know, Mary is not some evil person that is just guilty and also crazy. She is somebody that is going through something that is suffering and it's more complicated than bad versus good. There are a lot of moments in this story where you're kind of rooting for her, where you're kind of saying, maybe she has a point. Maybe she's justified. Maybe 
she deserves support rather than being stopped. And those are the types of stories that we want to see for characters that are dealing with issues that I think are often sort of used as the butt of jokes or the justification of evil. I really love that interpretation. And I think one of the things that this first issue really sort of really beats home for me is that by kind of using the fact that in some ways, Mary's in kind of kabuki makeup. It's this really extreme interpretation of makeup in a very stage play kind of way. And this first issue does sort of play out in acts in a way that maybe the other issues don't play out so much. And by examining those individual acts, I think we're able to sort of see Mary's illness. The subsequent issues see Mary in a much more aggressive, uh, sort of battle-ready role. But I think this issue is the issue where we really get to talk about her mental health and the way it relates to the trappings of the world around her. I think by using Spider-Man, a single hero that the audience knows really well, you don't really need to introduce us to Spider-Man. You have to introduce us to all of the X-Men. You have to tell us who the fuck Danny Rand is, because for the most part, we know he's white. So I think with that as the perspective point, the Spider-Man issue is the best examination of Mary's mental state. And I think it's a really beautiful reflection of the parts of Mary's past that are sometimes unsure that still I think most people think of when they think of Mary. It's the soap opera actress thing that I'm really pointing to. You know, she in this issue is living in a soap opera in her own mind, literally. She's kind of seeing the production, but we can all see that it's not really there. It's this very interesting interplay of reality, lack of reality, and a sort of TV component that might be informed by Mary's real life. It's just making everything so uncertain and making us realize this is not somebody who, again, we don't need to see her as crazy and evil. She's somebody whose worldview is disturbed, is lacking grounding. And that's an important place to start a story that's going to be taken up to sort of an action extreme. And I love your perspective on sort of the role that Mary's agency plays in all of this, because I feel like Amp plays a really important contrast role. Admittedly, I don't know that Zachary gets the most personal development throughout these issues. While he is an interesting character, he does feel a little flat. And, you know, Dr. Charles, best intentions, I guess, you know, maybe doesn't come alive, but they don't need to. They're secondary players to Mary's grandioseness. And I found myself really eager to understand what unleashing Mary at a higher pitch means. We've always had Mary sort of in her own way. And this was an examination of what Mary could be turned up to 11. Yeah, this is really Mary as somebody who could be on the same level as Wilson Fisk in Devil's Reign or even somebody like Dr. Doom. This is a little mini event and obviously it's not going to be something that changes the Marvel Universe forever, but it has all the trappings of something that makes you believe that it could if they chose to and if a story over a long period of time brought Mary to a place where she decided that she wanted to take that route. You know, and it's in that regard that thinking back on it, I may be disappointed that Typhoid Fever X-Men by Clay McLeod Chapman, Will Robinson, and Danilo Beirut with Rochelle Rosenberg and Dono Sanchez Almera on colors with letters by VCs Travis Lanham didn't get brought back up in the course of Devil's Reign X-Men, which was Emma Frost versus Kingpin, when here you have Jean Grey versus Typhoid Mary. You've got one married couple versus the other married couple. And I feel like that 
that's a really interesting point that we could have explored a bit more. I think you're absolutely right about that. I think, you know, one of the things that we have been talking about is this idea of plausible histories between these characters, relationships that they might have had in the past. We talked about it with Mary and Electra. We talked about it with Emma and Electra. I was so surprised to discover this story because the first thing you see is Jean and Mary and think, of course, these two have had interactions. And of course, they've had ones that we don't know about that have happened off screen. They're so similar. Mary is in a lot of ways a there but for the grace of God go I for Jean. And I think seeing them on page together in this is really important to my understanding of both characters. And I think it could have been a very interesting addition to Devil's Reign. And one of the things that I noticed right off is the art here is, I guess, I would I would find this challenging to reference under Phil Noto. Not that the art here doesn't work for me. It kind of represents Mary's further distorted view of reality in comparison to Stefano Landini's tighter, cleaner pencils from the previous issue. But I, I could maybe see where there would be some difficulty homogenizing the two ideas. Not that I believe either artist wouldn't be capable of referencing the other. Just that the fluidity of the idea might not befit both stories. But okay, now I maybe missed some stuff and I, I might need your help a little bit. But was there a book where this was the team? I mean, this was kind of X-Men Red, not really. Kind of, right? But not really. This is like X-Men Red and then Jean calls her other friends because she knows that this is a bad thing and it can't just be the team that she has got under the sea. It's got to be the real heavy hitters. Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better because I'm like, this is such a weird team and I love it. I'm not complaining about it. I think Nightcrawler looks so hot throughout this issue. I think anytime Bishop appears is always a great time. I found myself perhaps most fascinated with comparing Jean and Mary's mental states, especially considering that they both experienced trauma as children and they both were institutional and there are so many layers to comparing these two and what a Mary could have become if she had had an Xavier in her life. All horrible things Xavier is considered. Well, and it doesn't need to just be Xavier. It's the it's the support of the team. It's the love of somebody like Scott Summers or Wolverine. Jean has had a lot of privileges. She's also had a lot of responsibility heaped on her and I think has made a lot of bad calls that we sort of as people who absolutely adore her don't always put her on the hook for in the same way that like a writer is willing to put Mary on the hook for not entirely dissimilar things. It is very funny and you see it a lot in this issue how similar these two women are and it's sort of a mix of background and writer choice that leads them to actually be so different in how they're seen by the audience. And I really enjoyed the depiction of Jean as such a competent hero in this story because Jean is another woman who is frequently portrayed as an unreasonable woman and that's just not fucking fair when Wolverine will kill 30,000 people in it. I have a prop shield that just goes off sometimes. It just, I heard it just that. Goes. That was great. Yeah. Uh, you know, Wolverine will kill 30,000 people in a day for funsies, right? So maybe Jean's not so unreasonable. I maybe find the last page, the splash where we see kind of like the color transition down the page. We see the X-Men fighting each other. Spider 
Spider-Man shows back up. I only wish that this was a much longer event and like a mini series at that. And it was six issues and it featured all of these characters intermingled for six issues because I could have read a whole issue of this fucking amazing color scheme with the idea of seeing a Nightcrawler Spider-Man re-team up of seeing Gene versus Storm. Like, I know that that's not what this is meant to support. Like, so I'm not trying to create too much out of not enough. But there was something really exciting about that kind of splash page. That's the kind of thing you want as the final page of the story. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think it really speaks to the fact that this was a tight, contained event with a lot of gorgeous art and brilliant ideas that could have been more, you know, it's not like we missed out on anything by it being as tight as it is. It just sort of points out that this was not actually like some flimsy story idea that they were just trying to like get as much as they could out of. This is a really rich concept with a lot of rich artistry involved in it that could support a sequel or more stories involving all of these characters and referencing this time. Oh, for sure. I think perhaps the character who serves the least purpose is Iron Fist, who appears most predominantly in the third story, which is told by Clay McLeod Chapman with art by Paolo Villanelli. Colors, again by Rochelle Rosenberg with VC's Travis Lanham, bringing up one more set of letters. And I had forgotten that Clay had written Phantom Limbs. And so I guess in that regard, the Iron Fist story also does make sense. But, you know, Iron Fist plays the least role. This is really Mary's issue. She looks the best she, uh, of all three stories. There's so much in this. The X-Men still have great presence. But I don't know that Iron Fist has all that much more presence than the X-Men and Spider-Man continue to have. I think you're correct about that. And I don't think he has a particular chemistry with Mary or a ton to add in sort of in terms of complexity which sometimes is okay sometimes you just get that one Marvel superhero who shows up to be punchy punchy and you know to have a little fun that's that can be great for a story I completely agree. It's so significant to me that this story sets up so many things about where the Marvel Universe could go and yet still has like loving ties to things that came before it. You know, if nothing else, even if we don't have a whole lot of sense of why Iron Fist is here, at least like Iron Fist has filled in for Daredevil. So there's something to that. Like, I don't know. I, at the end of the day, love that the person that pulls out the story stops to save Mary is predominantly amp. There's something to be said about the idea that someone in universe sees Mary's pain and wants to help. That's something I like too. We're not the only ones who have grown attached to Mary in these years. And, you know, I think one of the things that Clay said in the interview that really resonated with me, one of them was like, yeah, he's one of the good ones. Glad we had him on, you know, <laughs> like was when he said that he just wanted to do better for her than had been done and he just he's not sure but he hopes he has like with a character like Mary, whose needs are so unique, and you know, she is a fictional character. She was created by multiple hands, but because she was created by multiple hands, she's so many things to so many people, and the rich tapestry that she represents, even though it covers so many aspects of the Marvel Universe, each one of those threads that are being weaved together to create that tapestry is unique. And Mary is such a hard character to pin down for that reason, and this story did it for me. I was just really excited. I enjoyed 
enjoyed it. I really liked that Amp came through and saved the day. And I liked that Mary was left in a cool place to do something even better. And it was just, I don't know, it was exciting to love a Mary story. It was exciting for me too, especially because I have been loving so many stories where Mary is a very important player, but I don't think you can call any of the Mary stories. It was also really exciting because this is the last story before she appears as Sister Elizabeth in Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil run. So there's maybe some untold story between this and when we first see her in that. But in this, the last thing we see is her in a church confessing. And next she shows up sort of hiding as a nun. I don't know. It was just a great connected, great piece of connective tissue that discovering it after all of the story with Sister Elizabeth and then Mary and then Devil's Reign, it was a really satisfying like prequel tie-in, tie together of everything I've seen about her lately. And the history of Daredevil is so rich with members of the clergy and nuns themselves that it's a beautiful touchstone back to so many things about Daredevil, yet still making it all uniquely Mary's. And that's something I really like. I found myself charmed with the idea that Mary has always been lingering and loitering around the X-Men side of the Marvel Universe. If for no other reason, Daredevil and Wolverine and Elektra all pretty comfortably share the hand. And now that Punisher's in there and Daredevil and Punisher and Wolverine and Punisher and Electro and Punisher. Everybody's got history. Everybody's got beef. It's a really good situation. I'm pretty sure everybody's banged or at least, you know, taken a peek. So it's a really fascinating thing that Typhoid Mary could enter that gambit. I maybe don't want her to. You know, I like Wilson and the hand is two very different things and the years where they've combined them outside of him, like hiring a hand assassin, not always the most fluid success. But if this is one of the things that helps elevate Mary to that next level of character status, then I'm here for it. And I'm really excited that people are going to look back and see, oh, that cool point of intersection. That's one of the things that did it. And I think the other side of that is as Mary has grown over these past few years and we're seeing a sort of renaissance of her character, I think coming up, we're going to talk about another really great one in Electra 100. Mutant identity is also really growing in changing in these last few years and Mary is of course a mutant and I think there might be a real story to be told in Mary coming to understand her mutant identity at a time when mutants are saying to their kind around the world accept who you are embrace who you are and there's a homeland for you. maybe it's time to put a hell's kitchen on Krakoa hmm? oh, I'm so there for that oh god oh I could gouge my eyes out ah, and until I get what I want TK ah, where can everybody find you on the internet you can find me on Twitter and Instagram begging for Wilson and Mary to sail to Krakoa at X Nate X Gray X. And you guys can find me as always on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And guys, don't forget, you guys can check out my original work in the upcoming Young Men in Love collection. I'm so excited to be a part of it. It comes out in June for Pride Month. You can pre order it from Diamond or your LCS. It's got amazing talents that have worked on Marvel and X Men projects like Terry Bloss, Anthony Oliveira, Cena Grace, and more. I'm so excited to be part of it. And don't forget you guys can always subscribe to the show over on x's for podcast at twitter and until next time keep those krakoan gateways open those mutant lights lit remember mary's always been a part of the mutant universe and we'll see ya bye
like this is like whoa <laughs> like i don't know 